Last week, as we uh, are going through our Acts series, we were in Acts 16, and uh, there we saw really a, a, a really interesting relationship or relationships that God had put together in the early church in the city of Philippi, and uh, there are bound to be some more Greek and Roman names of cities for this morning, so just prepare yourself for that one. Uh, but Philippi was one of them, and, and last week we saw that God really weaved together at least three friendships, if not more, with uh, Paul and a woman named Lydia and a Philippian jailer and probably a uh, abused girl as well. And as that happened, it really gave the foundation of the beginning of a church. And, and uh, Paul, he's doing this everywhere he goes in the New Testament. And if you're somewhat familiar with the Bible or the New Testament in particular, then this is something you see all the time happening, especially with Paul as he goes to a city that knows nothing of Jesus or knows very little about Jesus other than he's a lawbreaker. He's somebody worthy of crucifixion, uh, a lawbreaker's death of the, of the worst kind, and then he, he starts teaching them about Jesus. And uh, so he does that at Philippi, and then he moves on and he does it now in a different city or cities in Acts chapter 17. And today we're going to uh, get there. But before we do, we're actually going to change pace a little bit. So the, uh, the normal pace that we've had in, in Acts as we've gone through it is just to take it a chapter at a time. So Acts 1, Acts 2, Acts 3, and so forth. Sequentially, just those would become the sermons. Uh, but at this point, Acts changes somewhat, and really to accommodate the flow of thought and, uh, frankly, our schedule in some ways, because we want to be done by the end of May uh, with Acts, that we're, uh, we're rearranging some things. And so today we're actually just going to take the first 15 verses of chapter 17, and then next week the rest of chapter 17, and it will kind of be a little bit unpredictable. So if you're averse to change, let me tell you, change is coming. It will, it will be different this week and the following weeks. We won't be going just a chapter at a time, but we will uh, break it up in different ways, whether that's half a chapter or two chapters altogether at some points. So just uh, be aware of that. But today we're in Acts chapter 17, and uh, Paul here runs into a different city uh, or cities. The first one's Macedonia, and it is the capital of the region that he's in, uh, or Thessalonica is the capital of the Macedonian region. And, and, uh, and after that, Paul will move on to Berea, a much smaller town, uh, a town really, not a city. And as he does that, he continues to do the same activity. He goes into a city. He's not been there before, uh, but he starts preaching Jesus, arguing that Jesus is the Christ, uh, that he is, uh, in some sense, king, as we'll see, uh, the ultimate king. And as he does, he always experiences opposition. Always. And this week, uh, we see that it actually produces a mixed reaction. Some people love him for it. Some people hate him for it. And this is a, a reality that Paul would talk about later to the Corinthians in. should be on the screen for you. But he talks about it this way, that for we are... The aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. So he's, he says when, when, when God sees us, what he sees or what he smells in some sense is a wonderful thing. And among those who are perishing, that as we participate in this gospel ministry, we're sharing Jesus with people 
then we, we seem a certain way to God, and it's beautiful. But then he says, to one a fragrance of death to death, and to the other a fragrance from life to life. He, Paul says when he goes into a new city, and he starts sharing the gospel with the people there, some people say, what is that stench? Like, do you smell that? And if you've ever actually been around a dead animal, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, for miles, <laughs> miles around, you know, it just stinks. And Paul says to the people who are dead in their sin and want nothing to do with God, that, that is who, that is what we smell like. We smell like death to them. And he says to other people that, that are receptive to God, that God is working in, that don't reject the gospel, he says to them, we smell like life. Instead of some sort of roadkill, we smell like a room full of flowers. And, and, and that's the way that he sees himself, and that's the way he thinks about sharing the gospel. And as he does this in this city, we see that there, there's a number of responses, a number of responses as he shares the gospel. Um, but the point is that he needs to. This is evangelism. He's going from one place to another, preaching Christ, and there is actually a fair amount of uh, opposition to this uh, that we, we see in the world today, and particularly in our time. And there was a recent study by uh, the Barna Group this past week, actually, that came out. They're a group that does a, a number of things like Pew Research Center. They kind of take pollings of all sorts of things. Barna for religious reasons in particular. And uh, what they found that they posted this past week is that, that um, millennials, Christian millennials, say that evangelism is wrong in some sense. Half, half, nearly half of Christian millennials, so think about that, Christian millennials say it's wrong to share your faith with someone else. And the way that they define millennials, some people do it differently, but it's 1984 to 1998. So if you're in that age bracket, then Barna, the Barna group considers you a millennial. And, uh, and they'll say this, and I just have the quote for you, so there's no confusion about it. They say this, quote, Millennials in particular feel equipped to share their faith with others. For instance, almost three quarters say they know how to respond when someone raises questions about faith, 73%. And that they are gifted at sharing their faith with other people, 73%. This is, a higher, this is higher than any other generational group. Gen X, 66, boomers, 59, and elders, 56, end quote. So that's amazing news that millennials, Barney is saying in this group, people from 1984 to 1980, uh, 80, 1998, um, are saying that they, when they think about the gospel and sharing the gospel, they, they feel more equipped to do it, at least 20%, close to 20% more than uh, the past two generations. They feel more equipped, more prepared to do it. Not only that, but they also feel gifted to do it. They say, I'm not only prepared to do this, but like, I'm good at it. I know I'm good at it. But here's the problem. Keep reading. Quote, despite this, many millennials are unsure about the actual practice of evangelism. Almost half of millennials, 47%, agree at least somewhat that it is wrong to share one's beliefs, personal beliefs, with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share this, that, the same faith. End quote. So, if three quarters of millennials 
believe that they are equipped to share the gospel and they are gifted at it, why do nearly half believe it's wrong to do so? Do you see the contradiction here? Major contradiction. And it's a really fascinating article. I encourage you to read it on your own. And one of the other things that they say, I don't have listed here, is that they believe, people in this age group, they believe that it's really good for them. Uh, Not sharing the gospel necessarily, but for them, Christianity, belief in Christ, is really encouraging, really validating for them. But only half say that you should do that, share it with other people. On some level, there's a disconnect of belief. And we see in Acts chapter 17 today that this should not be the case. Even though on some level there's a disconnect, what we see with Paul is just the opposite. He goes in and he shares the gospel with these two cities. And as he does, he'll really encounter three different responses. And uh, this leads to the main point for today, which is that no one encounters the gospel and stays the same. I'll say that again. The main point is no one encounters the gospel and stays the same. And with the three different reactions, the first one that we see in verses 1 through 4 is that some people, as they're evangelized, as they hear the gospel, become reasonable. In verse 1, we start reading, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So we see that Paul moves into this new region, uh, and there are really four regions within Macedonia. This is the, the biggest of them. And Thessalonica is the chief city in the whole region. So it's a big city, big city center. There's a Jewish synagogue there. We didn't see that last week in Philippi. But this is probably because Thessalonica is huge. It is a big city. It has about 100,000 people in it at this time. Uh, It had port access to the Aegean Sea. It had a lot going for it. It had all the attributes of a big city. It had wealth. It had power. It had status. Anybody who wanted to be anybody in the region wanted to be in Thessalonica. Uh, It had a number of different worldviews, as as metroplexes have in different cultures. It was a strategic place for the gospel, and that's exactly why Paul's there. He wants to infiltrate it, share Jesus, and have Jesus go throughout the whole world. He is very keen on this evangelism idea. And the way that Paul does it, we see, uh, is his typical method. He goes in, tells Jews the gospel first, and then he would normally go to Gentiles. But as we'll see, uh, he doesn't have the opportunity. It's because the reception this time is so intense that he doesn't even have the opportunity to go to the Gentiles. Things get so intense that he has to flee for his life And when he writes to the Thessalonians later, after he leaves, he'll describe it this way, that he was torn away from them, even though he wanted to stay with them longer. That he was prematurely, in his opinion, taken away from them, even though he wanted to stay with them. The persecution is that intense. And and so he leaves, but he sends Timothy back later to encourage them. And uh, 
the important thing for us here is that before he leaves, he evangelizes. So let's take a look at that. How did Paul build this church? How did he share the gospel with them? In verse 2, we see that it says, On three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now this is a normal thing that Paul does, and he was probably there for longer than just three, three Sabbaths or three weeks, but at least three of them he spent full time in the synagogue telling people about Jesus, arguing that Jesus is the Christ from the Scriptures. And uh, Luke will give us a certain method that Paul uses to do this. He says uh, that he reasoned with them. The word for reasoned is the same word that we get the word dialogue from. Uh, it, it really gives you the idea that Paul is not standing up there every Sabbath in the synagogue saying, you have to repent, believe Jesus is the Christ. Rather, he's getting up there and he's saying, here are some core fundamental truths of Christianity. Here is what Jesus did. Here's who he is. And as he does that, he's talking about all those things in a public setting, public forum. So when I first read this, I imagine for you reading it, we'd be tempted to think that Paul is just getting into the synagogue in a new city, and then he stands up and he just monologues the whole time. That's not the case. Paul gets up here and he starts dialoguing with people. This is, uh, it, it's pretty insightful because if you can do this, you really have to know your stuff, right? Uh, forums are really popular these days. People love to see debates and that kind of thing. And, and it was the same with Paul. As he goes into the city, he is so convicted about what he believes that he can stand up and he can say, Jesus is the Messiah, and he can take on any criticism for it. And then he can say, no, actually, here's why. And he dialogues with people about it. This means some important things for us, I think, important things for the church, that it's really important for us, for believers, to dialogue with people about the gospel. Really important for us to do that. Many of us are probably afraid to do that, to step into some kind of debate. And, uh, and maybe some of you, like the way you, you think you should do that or the way that you do that is by just logging into Facebook and throwing something out there. Facebook's probably not the most helpful way to have debates these days, if you haven't noticed yet. But um, nonetheless, Paul's example, and what we see is that Christians need to engage the culture. Now, they don't step into the culture like a lot of people think or might think and just say, you need to stop talking and listen to me. So I'm just going to monologue for an hour, and then at the end of it, you'll agree with me. That's not what Paul does. He enters into their culture and then he starts dialoguing with them about the truths of Christ. It says, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. This is a conversation Paul's willing to step into and engage with. And not only that, not only do we have to dialogue with people about the gospel, but we also see something else that Paul is here proving that Jesus is the Christ. The gospel's right. It's truth. I was once talking with an atheist friend of mine um, for some time. We'd have a lot of great debates. And, uh, and so one time after, after really years of talking with him, he just asked me, why do you believe the gospel? And I said, well, 
First, because I believe that Jesus enables me to. Like, he, he saved me, so I believe it. But besides that, uh, I would say that it's the most intellectually satisfying answer there is. It's not like Christianity is unreasonable. Paul shows it's very reasonable. Very reasonable. Uh, and he's not the only one. Justin Martyr, if you've ever read of Justin Martyr, he's a, a, um, a Christian 150 years after Jesus' birth, and he wrote this to the Roman emperor at the time, Antonius Pius. He said, really, Christianity is reasonable. It is. And he said this, that, quote, we will now offer proof, not trusting mere assertions, but being of necessity persuaded by those who prophesied of him, that's of Jesus, before these things came to pass. And this will, we think, appear even to you the strongest and truest evidence. Justin Martyr, when he thinks about Christianity and he's trying to persuade the Roman emperor of the day, he says, look to the prophets. There are verifiable truths about Jesus and you need to know them. And so we see Paul doing the same thing. He really has a three-part logic system that's very simple. He says, number one, the Christ was supposed, the Christ was supposed to suffer and be resurrected. Number two, Jesus suffered and resurrected. Therefore, three, Jesus is the Christ. This is basic logic here. And Paul loves it, and he uses it to try to persuade people to the gospel. Christianity is arguably the most satisfying answer to life's biggest questions. I really, really believe that. I really think that. You say, well, of course you should think that. You're up there preaching right now, so... Yes, I probably should, but it, it is why I'm here saying these things. This is true, and it's verifiable. We shouldn't be afraid to enter into dialogue with other people, with unbelievers, who don't think Christianity is not true. It's verifiable. And that, that leads to evangelization. That leads to us evangelizing. Well, what happens when we do? What happens when Paul does? In verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. They were persuaded and they joined. When we get involved into other people's lives and share the gospel with them, God will save some. He will do it. Not all, but some. Now, I realize that there's probably only half of this room that really is engaged at this point because when you see this, you may, it may really resonate with you and you may say, yes, this, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Logic. We need logic. It's very simple. The Christ was supposed to suffer and be resurrected. Jesus did those things. Therefore, Jesus is the Christ. What more do you need? Uh, and for some of you, you start to kind of salivate about that. You're like, yes, logic. This is all I need. But there's more to it than just logic. We see Paul giving himself to this. This is not merely intellectualism. Paul is laying down his life again and again for the sake of the gospel. He engages people, not just with logic, even though that's good, but with his heart. He tries to what? Persuade them. Persuade them into believing this gospel. You see, Paul, unlike at least half of millennials today, says when it comes to sharing the gospel, 
It involves your mind, it involves the will, it involves the heart, it involves everything. All the resources that you have are to be utilized to try to persuade people to understanding this gospel. It's true, yes, but it will, it's moving. It will change you. And so I think we have to really ask ourselves some questions from this uh, that I found convicting as I was thinking about it. Can I explain? So ask, ask yourself this question. Can I explain why Jesus needed to suffer from the scriptures? Just in a normal conversation with people. Can I do that? What passages come to mind? What passages do I use? Or can I explain why Jesus needed to be resurrected? Do you have any instant biblical passages that come to mind for you that you can not just leverage as an argument to say, I'm right, you're wrong, but that you can help people understand? Or maybe, maybe you're dealing with people who don't know the scriptures so much, for probably most of us, uh, can you actually just walk through the way that Paul does it in Romans, in the Romans road? Can you quote, or at least can you paraphrase Romans 3.23, that all of sin falls short of the glory of God? Or 6.23, that the wages of sin is death? Or 5.8, but God demonstrates his love to us in Christ? Or Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, you will be saved. You see, these are things that Christians need to be able to do. We need to be able to step into not just some sort of pulpit and talk to people in monologue form, but we need to be able to step into people's lives and reasonably and passionately share the truth of the gospel with them. And there's all sorts of other great arguments that I was tempted to kind of put in here about uh, Peter Stoner has a great argument on Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. If you want to jot that down, look at it later. But really, what we don't want to do is say, you know what, Christianity is right. Aha, I knew it. Therefore, you're wrong. Here's all my ammunition to prove you you're wrong. This is not Paul's motivation. He's trying to persuade people. And one way we can see him do it elsewhere is in Acts 26. Before King Festus and King Agrippa, he'll say this. King Agrippa... Do you believe the prophets? Same argument. It's verifiable. Do you believe the prophets that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? You see, King Agrippa knows what Paul's doing here. He sees the logic. He sees the passion. He knows he's a prisoner for the gospel. And he says, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to persuade me, aren't you? And Paul will say, of course I am. And everything, I hope that you become everything I am except for my chains. And so whether it's the Thessalonians or King Agrippa, the Apostle Paul wanted to persuade everyone that Jesus is the Christ and salvation is only found in him. And so I wonder, do you ever dialogue with unbelievers about the gospel? Do you do that? Or are you afraid to do it? Here's another good question for you. Are you a safe place for unbelievers to bring their questions to about Jesus? Are you a safe place? Paul's a safe place here. They could come to him and say, I don't know about this. And he say, well, actually, let me show you. He was a safe place. Do you believe that it's wrong to share the gospel? Like half a millennials. That's a problem here. We have a totally different example from Scripture in the life of Paul. 
No one encounters the gospel and stays the same. And we see that here, the first interaction with the group is that they become reasonable. They're persuaded by Paul. They see it and they say, you know what? That's true. That's right. I believe it. But not everybody responds that way. Not everybody acts that way when they're encountered with the gospel. And so that's the second point, that some people become jealous. Some people become jealous. In Acts 17, verse 5, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them, seeking to bring out them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus, and all acting, uh, and, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed, and when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So there's another group here of Jews, mostly Jews, that hear this very reasonable presentation. The first group we see, they hear it, they work through it, they hear Paul, and they, you know what? You're right. And there's another group that when they hear it, they don't deny that it's reasonable. In fact, Paul out, he out-argues them. And it's easy to out-argue people sometimes. That doesn't mean you're necessarily right. But then Paul out-argues them, and he's right. He proves it. And so what do they do? They do not say, you're right, Paul. We're wrong. I guess we should humble ourselves. In verse 5, it says, they became jealous. You see, the religious leaders of the Jews here, they hear this and it happens every time. It happens every time with Paul. It happens every time in the Gospels with Christ because of their hard hearts. They hear the truth and it's undeniable, undeniable to them, but they still say, I'm not going to believe that. Why? It's because they really have set themselves up as king. They're self-centered. They see some other news coming in that would upset the order of things. They're no longer going to be the ones that people go to for attention. They're no longer the ones that people go to for answers. They can actually see that Jesus is the Christ, and they don't like this. They don't like that they're not at the center. They become jealous, and therefore they become angry. And what's the next logical progression for them? We disagree with Paul, so let's kill him. There's actually, it may seem a little outlandish, but there's probably a lot of people that act this way today. You disagree with me, you're dead to me. You disagree with me, never going to talk to you again. We probably act more like the Pharisees than we like to admit sometimes. But there's something that we should note of this, and it's that when you share the gospel with people, and there's another group of people that get upset about what you're saying, what you're saying you may be on the right track. You may be on the right track. If people are getting upset about what you were saying, you may have the right gospel. It will happen. Not everybody will listen to you. Not everybody will like you. Not everybody will agree with you. Some people hear it and they say, not for me. That changes my life. It upsets the order of things. I don't want it. And that's how it is with these Jews. So what do they do? They argue a couple things, as they get some, uh, some low lives, they most likely pay them to uh, talk for them. 
and they cause a riot in the city, and they really say that Paul is subverting the government and committing sedition. And we're a little bit removed, so it might be a little hard to understand, but for the Romans, and this city in particular, to be a Roman, you had to take an oath. And one of the things that the oath entailed was that if you heard of anyone talking about a different king, then you'd have to report them as traitors. Traitors to the crown, we might say. And so there's some ring of truth to that. Paul's been talking about this eternal king, Jesus, but they take it, they manipulate it, and then they say, you know what, he's worthy of death, and they run him out of town. And so we, we see that that really section of his, his ministry ends, and he has to leave, he has to flee for his life. And so I wonder, is there enough evidence, like Paul, for you, that people would condemn you? Is there enough evidence for that? That, that your opponents can so articulate what you're saying that they say, you know what, really what he's saying is, there's another king. There's somebody else that my life has to revolve around, and we don't like it. Can people who disagree with you articulate your beliefs? They can, in some form, for, for the Thessalonians here, the Jews that don't believe And it should be for us. We should be so clear with the gospel that the only evidence brought against us is the evidence of the truth, that we really believe this news about Jesus. And so there is some reaction from people that they become more reasonable and other people become more jealous. And there's another kind of reaction. If we're just tempted to think it's either just belief or disbelief, that's true. But there's still a little bit different of a reaction that Luke points out to us. And it's in the following verses. It's the third point that some people become more noble when they interact with the gospel. In verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there to agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy, command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, for the first time in his life, Paul has to uproot again and leave for the sake of his own life. Otherwise, he'll undoubtedly be lynched. He'll undoubtedly be murdered by a mob. And so he gets up and leaves with Silas. And the unbelieving Jews hear what happens next. He goes to another town doing the same thing. And so Paul's getting quite the following these days, not the following that he wants. And so they then go to that city and they drive him out of there as well. And as they drive him out, Paul leaves a very special group of people called the Bereans. Now, if you're familiar with the Bereans whatsoever, they're kind of the the top shelf Christians in the Bible because of the way they act. And Paul even says this about them, that they are more noble than the ones in 
Thessalonica. They're more noble. And why are they more noble? One of the reasons, I think, is because they just don't have the complicatedness of life. Uh, complicatedness of life. They, they are in a much smaller town. Berea is about 6,000 people strong versus Thessalonica is 100,000 people. And with this 6,000 people, it's kind of a rural area. It's a town. It's modern. It's not backwater. But, but they're still, still there and they, they have, they're not a complicated people. We'll just say that. The Bereans are not a complicated people. They're a very straightforward people. And so when they hear Paul, they don't respond with, with prejudice. They don't respond with criticism. They say, oh, you're, you're teaching the scriptures. We love the scriptures. And so it says that they receive the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What were these things? Well, undoubtedly, Paul's saying the same thing to the Bereans he did to the Thessalonians. He's coming and he's saying that the Christ was supposed to suffer and be raised. Jesus suffered and was raised. Therefore, Jesus is the Christ. He's saying the same sort of things. And as it interacts with them now, what do they do? They say, that's really interesting. We're going to have to figure that out for ourselves. And so they go back, and I can just imagine, uh, they didn't have Bibles, they had scrolls. So they listen to Paul in the synagogue, and what do they do? Someone says, that was really a really interesting conversation today. Someone, go find the scroll. Where's the, where's the scroll of the Psalms? Let's turn to Psalm 22. What did, what did the Psalms say? What does David say? The Bereans are not content to just believe what someone says. They have to investigate it for themselves. They have to investigate it for themselves. They were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's why they're more noble. It's because they didn't just take someone's word for it. They actually investigated it themselves. And the word for examine is really really a... Um, a judicial term that if you were in court, you would go through something line by line by line. They're not content to just say, oh yeah, here's generally what Paul said and what the scripture says. They say, no, I want to see it for myself. I want to see it proven. And so that's what they do. And this points out for us something pretty important. Yes, when people encounter the gospel, it changes them, as we see. Yes, some people don't believe and are antagonistic. And yes, some people are persuaded into the faith by the reasonableness of the gospel. But no, to all these yeses, no, just because you become a Christian does not mean you will become a mature Christian. And that's really the, the thing that we start to see here with the Bereans contrasted with the Thessalonians. And we don't have time to read into all of it, but Paul writes two epistles, two letters to the Thessalonians, and some patterns emerge as he writes to them. One of them is that they just overall don't have a, a strong scriptural base to their life. When trouble comes, when affliction comes, when persecution comes, as he writes to them, they kind of freak out. They just lose control. They're like, I don't know, why is this happening? Why is life so difficult? And Paul writes to them in his letter, he said, don't be surprised. This is normal. People will persecute you. People will disagree with you. And not only that, we also see, as Paul writes, that he's confronting an attitude of laziness. Laziness. 
The Thessalonians are in the Thessalonican culture. And part of that culture, as we see, is laziness. What happens? Where do the religious leaders go to get this mob? They go to the court area. Because there's a bunch of lowlifes that their job is to get paid by people to just voice disgruntled thoughts. That's all they do. They sit there in the area and if you want to get really persuasive for your case, you go to these people and you say, you know what, I'll pay you some money just to complain about other people. Sounds, sounds very similar to our political system these days on every side. And, and it's really about laziness. They don't know anything about the arguments. They don't care, really. All that they, the Thessalonians want is they just say, you know what, just tell me. Just tell me what to believe. I don't want to think about it, really. Maybe I'll think about it with other people, but I don't want to really think about it. I mean, like, go pick up a book and read it? Who does that? And, and really what the Thessalonians are doing and what Paul engages them with in this dialoguing is the Socratic method, which is fantastic. I can think of one elder in particular who loves the Socratic method, Brent Stanfield. But uh, and it's really good, and it helps you learn and think about things and process and turn them over in your mind and see the, the holes in the arguments. And it's fantastic, but what the Socratic method, what dialoguing cannot do for you is give you personal conviction and ownership of study. It cannot do it. And so what we see Paul, uh, Paul saying as he interacts with the Bereans, and what Luke's saying is he writes to the early church, he says, you know what, there's, there's a way to believe the gospel. You can be persuaded by it. You can see the factual evidences of it. But there's a better way to believe. There's a better way to receive the gospel. And that is that you actually do the work yourself. You don't just hear what people say, but you hear it, then you say, you know what, I'm going to Snopes. I'm going to fact check this thing. I'm going to see what is the real argument of what's happening here. And that's what the Bereans do. It is the believer who receives God's word eagerly and seeks to carefully examine people's teaching against it that will flourish. They are more, more noble. And I saw this myself uh, in seminary, for sure. I, uh, I went to, I think, arguably one of the best seminaries in the world, and I was shocked my first semester to get there and realize people aren't studying. Like, there are some people in class that they hear it and they say, well, that's, that's great. That was really intellectual. That was really stimulating. And then what do they do? They just kind of go on about their life. They can regurgitate it, but they don't go back to the scriptures. And so for me, I saw, I saw what I was like, man, all these people are like super elite. I'm dumb compared to everybody. And I saw a lot of people they're more like the Thessalonians than the Bereans. And I think we have the same danger to fall into, the exact same danger. When in preaching, right now with what I'm telling you, do you think about it ever again? Or do you just take it and say, you know what, that's what Pastor John said, so it must be true. Don't do that. Investigate it for yourself. Think about it for yourself. If you do, what will happen? Verse 12, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. You see, Paul, Luke uses some, some verbs here to describe what's going on. For the Thessalonians, what did they do? They were reasoned with, and the result was that they, per, 
they were persuaded and they joined. The basis of them joining was that they say, you know what? This seems right to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get on board. A different thing with the Bereans. The Bereans, what happens? They receive and they believe. They are unshakable. They are firm. They are solid in their belief about Christ and who he is and why he came. The Bereans here are a great example for us. And I have to ask myself, I I hope that you would ask yourself, is it true? Is it true that your faith is unshakable because you have studied for yourself? Or do you just rely on what other people say? This is why you need to bring your Bibles. This is why I love bringing my Bible anytime I hear someone preach. At the same time I hear them, I can look at it and I can say, yep, that's what the Bible says. A high view of Scripture will lead you to Christian maturity. And I can only imagine what the Bereans were like, what they looked like, what they said as they interacted with Paul. And Paul talked with them undoubtedly about Psalm 22 and how Jesus is the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah. And then they went to go find this scroll and talk about it and look at it for themselves. And then finding this sort of thing. I'll just read you some of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompasses me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet, and I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. You see, when you act like Brians, and you do your own work, and you compare what happens? You come to your own convictions. You say, I know what other people say, but I know, I know Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. And what happens in you as you develop a confessionalism that you say, you know, all those things that I heard about Christianity, all those confessions that people have said through the years, now I actually believe them myself. I know them myself. But we shouldn't look at the Bereans and say, let's let's just be like the Bereans. I think that would be the wrong temptation. They're a good example, as Luke puts forward. But really, we should turn to the scriptures and we can say, let's be like Christ. Let's be like Christ. It's not about moralism. It's not about finding a different group of people to follow. It's about turning to the scriptures, seeing the Christ. And so I wonder, do you have a high view of scripture? Is it an authority that you place over your life as divinely inspired from God, without error, powerful, and authoritative for your life, worthy of your time to go read? Do you test what people are saying by the scriptures yourself? See, no one encounters the gospel and stays the same. Some people are won over by the persuasion of it. Some people reject it entirely because they realize it's not about them They become jealous, and others who are more noble still 
they will hear it, and then they will test it against God's word. And I think Luke's question for us in this section is to say, what kind of person are you? What kind of person are you? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would make us the sort of people that not only hear your truth, but understand it and believe it to the core. God, we ask that you would give us a firm conviction on studying your word to know that Jesus is Lord of all, worthy of all my affection, worthy of all my time, owns all of my resources. Lord, would you give us such a conviction that would lead us to evangelizing people, to share the gospel, to say that this Jesus is so important. I have to tell you. If I don't, I'm really saying I don't believe. Lord, would that not be the case, but that you would change us, move in us, that we would be people of conviction and faith. And we ask in your name. Amen.